It's the 20th of February, 2016, and this is episode 283. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is new, exciting, and empowering, but we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin. It's Stephanie here with you today, and Andreas is joining me. Hi, Andreas. Hi, Stephanie. Adam is, uh, well, he got rained out today <laughs> due to his uh, satellite internet connection. And we thought we'd talk about some interesting news items that kind of relate to each other. The first one is that ransomware has been in the news a lot, um, not just recently, but I think on and off over the last couple of years. And there's a lot of ransomware out there, malware that infects a computer and encrypts all the files, basically holds them hostage unless Bitcoin is paid to the attacker to get the decryption code. This has happened to police departments. This has happened to corporations. Now it actually happened to a hospital in LA that got infected with this ransomware. And they actually paid the ransom. They paid about $17,000 in Bitcoin to hackers who managed to infect and attack their computer network. Andreas, have you ever had any personal experience with ransomware? Have you ever contracted one of these pieces of malware? I don't want to jinx myself, but since I started computing in 1982, I have contracted one computer virus in the late 80s, and that is the only time my security has ever been compromised. Wow, Um, that's great. Well, it, it mostly involves having to jump through a lot of hoops just to use my computer. (laughs) Well, it's always a trade-off between security and uh, convenience or usability. You know, you hear a lot of stuff. You hear warnings about don't click on suspicious links and emails from people you don't know. Don't click on that link that the cute girl on Facebook sends you that you don't know and has no profile pictures, you know. Don't open attachments and emails you don't know. But I I don't know. People seem to, to keep getting infected. And of course, the social engineering tactics evolve too as, as people wise up to them. I want to ask you, like, since you've been in computing for such a long time, has ransomware been around before Bitcoin? What did they demand for payouts? Or has, has Bitcoin kind of enabled this to take off? This is the thing, exactly. The ransomware has been around for probably more than a decade, maybe even longer than that, that I remember. This is what I find ironic is that you read all of these headlines and it's Bitcoin ransomware and Bitcoin extortionists. And the emphasis is always on the means of payment, which has really nothing to do with this criminal activity other than Bitcoin is, as the paper says, peer-to-peer electronic cash. And so what was the payment before this? Well, it was cash or cash cash equivalent instruments, money orders, very common mailing a money order to an abandoned address that someone then drops in and picks it up or leaving cash in a public location or various things like that. But of course, because of the possibility of the police running a sting operation that has higher risk, and obviously Bitcoin is fast, it's inexpensive, it's transnational, and it's borderless, and it's digital cash. Yeah, it just basically makes it a lot more convenient to pull something like this off. Right. Well, I mean, it's really good electronic cash. So, of course, um, as with many cases of technology, probably the most passionate early adopters of technology are always criminals. And there's a good reason for that. It's because they operate in the intersection 
of highest margin and highest risk. And therefore, their ability to take relatively untested technology and leverage it in order to work in that area of high margin, high risk is really quite important. So, of course, criminals the first to use telephones, criminals the first to use automobiles, the first criminal monkey was the first to figure out how to bash another monkey on the head with a rock. So, you know. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that rocks or computers or cars are bad. It just means, and it doesn't mean that Bitcoin's bad. It just means that there are certain incentives that incentivize people to uh, adopt it when it's to their advantage. And of course, the counterpart to this argument is that you can't make technology that chooses who uses it. Yeah, but if you make exactly. technology both good and bad, people will use it. But on average, because 99.9999% of the population are up to good, <laughs> not up to no good, it really, in the end, becomes beneficial for society. Unless it's a technology that really doesn't have any positive applications whatsoever. And there are very many of those. I think a lot of people would argue that guns are a technology whose purpose is to kill, but then you can quite rightly argue that self-defense is, is an appropriate use of that, including self-defense against your government under the Second Amendment. So even a, a machine that kills is nuanced because there are circumstances under which it has a, a, a good use. In nuclear weapons, in order to you know, dismiss new weapons, you also have to dismiss use of nuclear energy, which is mm -hmm. has an environmental impact far below coal. And if you suddenly turned off all the nuclear power plants, we'd double the emissions in the world of coal and sulfur and all of those noxious chemicals. So the point is, it's not the technology that's evil, it's the use. And you can't control the use that people put it to. By the way, I've had a couple of experiences with extortion, but in a very strange way. Tell um, me about that. Well, I get these emails from people who say, I need to get hold of $10,000, $20,000 in Bitcoin within 48 hours. Is there a way? You know, and all of the verification sites and the bank wire transfers and the, you know, because we're at the intersection of banking and Bitcoin, the slow part is banking. And so it's usually very difficult to do that. And often when I get requests like this, I, I wonder, is this a victim of extortion? And I, I'm certainly not going to facilitate any kind of transaction that involves bypassing AML regulations and such. And so I, I advise people who send me requests like, this sounds like you're being extorted. You know, your best response is to seek, seek assistance from the FBI. You know, maybe that would be a good use of the Silk Road confiscated funds. They could use them for controlled management of, of extortion cases. But I get requests like that every now and then, and I'm pretty sure that some of these, and by the way, I got one beginning of this week, and I have a feeling it was related to this extortion attempt. To the hospital? Very likely. Actually, there's been three in the news lately, uh, which were all around the same amount. Uh, I think one of them reached out to me through intermediaries asking for ways to get their hands on Bitcoin. I can't really wow. disclose more. Yeah, uh, you know, I I was aware at the beginning of this week something was going on that probably involved extortion. Well, that's a difficult situation because you know you there's not really much you can do to help without especially putting yourself at risk. But of course, you feel bad if somebody's being extorted. What would well, you I can give advice, and 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 probably the most important advice in that case is that you you can actually get burned twice 
Because if you go and try to find ways to very quickly convert US dollars into Bitcoin, no questions asked, no process, no verification, no KYC AML. Well, first of all, that's breaking the law. So if you, no matter how you do it, it's probably some form of structuring or anti-money laundering violation. It's going to create suspicious activity requests. And anybody who's a legitimate player in this industry will have serious concerns about servicing a request like that. So what that means is the person you talk to who is willing to service that request is most likely up to no good. So in the process of trying to pay off your extortion, you get scammed out of your money or mugged. You know, you go meet someone in person to give them a big bundle of cash in return for Bitcoin. You're not going to get your Bitcoin. You're going to get mugged. So most of my advice is around not allowing this sense of urgency to, to essentially make you vulnerable to being exploited by yet another class of criminals who are going to take advantage of that. If someone is willing to do a very large transaction like that, no questions asked in a very short time frame, that person is up to no good. Do you think the best option in these situations is just not to play ball? To just say, well, whatever data we lost, it's gone. We're not going to deal with these people. We're not going to pay the ransom. Do you think by paying ransomware ransoms, it kind of just encourages more of the same? I mean, this is the old question about do you negotiate with a terrorist or whatever? The bottom line is, if you find yourself in this situation, it's not an extortion problem. It's a failure of backup and recovery process, right? So if somebody extorts me for access to my data, I don't give a damn. I have uh, multiple well-encrypted, distributed copies of my own data. And you can't extort me because you can't steal my data because my data is resiliently distributed, right? And if you're a corporation that does proper backup with you know, multiple tiers, grandfather, father, son rotation, as they call it, of backup. You have a process in place, you have verification of the backups on a regular basis. Uh, at most, you're going to lose maybe a day or a fraction of a day in terms mm -hmm. of your backups. So this shouldn't be a problem. What it reveals is that people don't have adequate backups. If you only have one copy of your data and it's compromised so easily, then the problem is you didn't have enough copies of your data because everyone's going to eventually get hit by this kind of virus. It's, it's impossible in a large organization with porous perimeters and machines moving in and out that you're going to get some kind of infection and compromise. In fact, you're going to probably get dozens per year. One of those is, may end up being an extortion scheme. So the best thing is to turn around and say, you know what, extortionists, I got backups. Go f*** yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, obviously... That is not the case for everyone. Here's the other thing to think about. If the extortionists did not release your data when you paid them, right? If they then came back and asked for more. Right. What that does is it poisons the marketplace because then people stop paying because, because they think, well, I'll pay them, but they'll still keep my data hostage and ask for more. So that poisons the market. Whereas, in fact, there is enough market out there that they can honor their criminal side of the bargain. It's kind of a, a really perverse and weird set of incentives. But from what I've seen, in the majority of cases, if, if these extortionists are paid, they release the data because they've got other fish to fry, right? And they don't want to create a perception that, uh, that paying is, is pointless because then their profit dries up. 
So ironically, paying them releases the data in most cases. And yet that's the worst possible thing you can do because then it encourages them to move on and find other victims and it, it feeds their criminal enterprise, it increases their budget, it allows them to pay for uh, more botnets, more compromised accounts, more stolen passwords from various sites where you can buy these things. You can convert budget to compromised machines. You can convert money to exploits. So if you fund them, you're funding their next victimization. I mean, this hospital is in a tough spot, right? Because if they didn't actually have the backups, even losing one day worth of data in a hospital could be really harmful to certain people if their medical right. records are in there or something. And they said the reason they did it, uh, paid the ransom, was because they wanted to basically restore their systems as quickly as possible. Right. And I mean, it's it's not the hot, like, I, I really would hesitate to blame the hospital because they got targeted. Look, and it takes a special kind of jerk to target a hospital. They know they're going to be really needing that data, and they know they might not have the backups in place or whatever. I'm still astonished that a hospital in today's day and age, with all of the regulations that exist in terms of maintaining both data privacy as well as resilience of data with electronic health records and electronic patient records and all of these things, that they would not have adequate backups. This is, this is a well-developed industry, the, the backup industry. There are a number of providers who can provide all kinds of tiered solutions from cloud-based to physical media to whatever that would allow you to back up both centralized systems and you know decentralized systems, a whole bunch of desktops and laptops. I cannot understand why they would not have adequate backup, but you know, there you go. And that, that may be one of the reasons they were targeted. We don't hear, that's the selection bias, we don't hear about all of the people who were extorted and tell the extortionists to go f*** themselves because they have backups. We only hear about the ones who have to make a payout. And even then, in many cases, we don't hear about that. They don't want to reveal this information because it's damaging to their public image. It's really uh, an indication of, of how terrible the reporting and standard of journalism is out there. But, you know, I mean, I can, I can complain about the terrible standards of journalism all day. But really, you see these headlines and you see these articles and it's Bitcoin extortionists and Bitcoin ransomware and Bitcoin this and Bitcoin that. It's not only completely missing the point, but it's injecting into the story a significant bias and perspective that is really unprofessional. You don't hear people saying US dollar terrorists or US dollar bank robbers or British pound sterling money launderers, right? <laughs> Um, no, the, never the, the ever heard those phrases until you just said them. <laughs> right. Uh, just like you don't hear Christian terrorists or, <laughs> you <laughs> <Right>. know, <laughs> there are certain categories of words that are never uttered together. Sometimes because, rightly so, the emphasis should not be on the means, it should be on the crime. So, you know, British sterling money launderers makes no sense whatsoever any more than Bitcoin money launderers makes any sense because the emphasis isn't on the means, or shouldn't be on the means, it should be on the criminal behavior. And in other cases, you know, it's a matter of obvious bias, like the reason you never hear the terms Christian terrorists mentioned in mainstream media in this country, is because terrorism as a word implies 
Islamic terrorism by definition, no matter if the act is exactly the same, no matter if the target is civilian, no matter if the motivation is entirely religious or to coerce a population into changing policies, it doesn't matter. It's applied with a very, very strong bias. It's important to deconstruct those things and unpack them because those connotations are purposely created based on the biases of the people who report. It's always important to not take the stories you read at face value and even down to the little combinations of words to really question it and ask, where's this person coming from who's actually writing this article? Don't believe everything you read, kids, on the internet (laughs) still applies. For example, if an Iranian frigate is traveling in the Straits of Hormuz, 50 miles off their own coast in international waters, it's provocation if they approach an American ship that is 4-5,000 miles from its own territorial waters. Yet, if the American ship does it in their water or right off their coast, it's a freedom of navigation exercise, right? <laughs> <laughs> If China is building um, air bases in the South China Sea and the Spratlys Islands, that's a provocation. The Diego Garcia Air Base, which is 10,000 miles from Britain, is an important strategic allied base, right? This kind of two-sided, two-faced, hypocritical contradiction where it's, it's good for the goose but not for the gander, it really rankles me, and I notice these things. Of course, it's not unique to American propaganda, the basis of the propaganda in every nation. It's the same kind of propaganda I had when I was a kid in Greece. If Greeks were doing it, it was different, and it was phrased differently than if others were doing it to Greece. And that kind of hypocritical, nationalistic attitude, tribalist attitude, where it's okay if we do it because of an exception, but it's not okay if others do exactly the same thing to us. That rankles. And, and you see it Me now. Me too, Andres. But you know what? I think a lot of people tend to seek out news sources that they already agree with and that are written in such a way that they can't find any argument with and they don't think critically about them. They don't. I, what I'm saying is, I don't think a lot of people read news to be challenged intellectually. I think they read what they already agree with. And I do it too. I mean, I completely admit it. But I don't know if we can completely like blame the news organizations for that. To a certain extent, they're following demand. Oh, I know. But uh, in my opinion, their primary job is, is truth. And you can't serve truth by ignoring your own implicit biases and promoting them and in some cases actively prop- propagandizing. Mm. Everybody so, has bias. It's just what is the bias? <laughs> Where are they coming from? And, and whether you work actively to overcome that bias, of course. In the context of Bitcoin ransomware, the thing that bothers me is the prefix Bitcoin that has nothing to do with the ransomware. Ransomware existed before Bitcoin. Ransomware will exist and has existed in any other currency. Ransomware is the practice uh, of extortion in exchange for value. And value will be exchanged using whatever medium of exchange is useful in that particular context. And it could be a detergent powder, as we've seen used as currency in some places. It could be papayas, it could be British pound sterling, and it could be Bitcoin. The fact that Bitcoin is really good at transmitting money is not the problem here. We shouldn't really treat the benefit that it brings to society as the fundamental problem and make it the villain in this story.
Hey everybody, Adam B. Levine here. The magic word for today's episode is epoch, which is spelled E-P-O-C-H. E-P-O-C-H. You can visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to log in and enter it for your share of the listener awards. Today, I'm proud to invite you to try out your own fee-free 10 store at redeem.tokenly.com. For a flat cost of $25 per month, you can create your own catalog of unlimited size, listing and selling your services, digital downloads, or physical items. You set prices in dollars and accept payment from your customers using credit cards, Bitcoin, altcoins, and select tokens like LTB coin, BitCrystals, and SJCX. The newest feature in Tend is what we call item relisting, that lets other merchants sell your items to their customers. When you create an item in your catalog, you can activate the relisting feature. Set a percentage of the purchase price, which you'll offer to any other 10 merchant who wants to sell your item. Then I can come along and on your items page, click the relist button, add it to my store with a couple of clicks. And whenever someone purchases it, the order and purchasing information is sent to you for fulfillment, while I get paid whatever commission you offered and you get the rest of the customer payment. So it's actually very possible to focus exclusively on marketing other merchants' products in your own catalog using relisted items and not offering any items at all of your own. Once you've filled your catalog with offerings, it can be customized to match your site's design and easily stuck into any web page. Head over to redeem.tokenly.com to start your free 14-day trial. And if you send me an email at adamandtokenly.com introducing yourself in your store, I'll give you a bonus month of service as a thank you for being one of our first users. Thanks for listening. Let's rejoin Andreas and Stephanie now. So here's a question that a lot of people have when they find out about any kind of Bitcoin fraud or theft or any shady activity going on that involves Bitcoin. What happens to ill-gotten Bitcoins? Does someone who pulls off a huge Bitcoin heist and gets a big bounty, do they slowly kind of dribble those off over time and sell them on local Bitcoins and sell them on the, to their friends? And, or do they sit on them for a long time and wait until people forget and then try to move them? What happens to those Bitcoins and how do they get traced and tracked? Tell me a little bit more about that. I think most people don't appreciate the fact that Bitcoin transactions, they're not like a check where you have a sender account and a single recipient account and that's it. And you sign it and it's a check. It's a single instrument can only go from one person to another person. Bitcoin transactions are essentially a state change in the global ledger. And that state change can move value from hundreds of inputs to hundreds of outputs that don't need to belong to the same people. So it's, it's very easy. And in fact, in many cases, they don't belong to the same people. And that's just within the structure of a transaction. But you've got to realize there's also many, many, many Bitcoin services that operate hot wallets. And hot wallets are basically a giant bucket where you throw an amount from one customer in the bucket with everybody else's amounts. And if you need a withdrawal, you dip into the bucket and you pull some money out. You know, that's is how that the traditional- a, Is that how most hot wallets work though? I thought that that describes more like a mixing service. No, that's how hot wallets work. That's how merchant services work. That's how merchant processing works. That's how e-commerce sites work. That's how most exchanges work. They have a database in the back end that tracks the balances for each customer. I mean, some are more sophisticated than that, and they allocate addresses per customer. But, but many really operate a hot wallet where all of the customer funds, they're not, they're not doing it to mix the customer funds. They're doing it because that's the easiest way to handle 
But it has um, the effect of basically mixing them. Right, but which is mm. exactly the same thing as if I take my cash to the bank. They don't put it in a little envelope that has my <laughs> name on yeah, and exactly. keep it in a vault. They throw it in a big bin, and that applies to electronic transactions, and it applies to cash transactions. And you can perhaps reconstruct the trail, but you can only do that one, two, three, four, five hops, and then it combinatorially explodes in your face. Because you can have hundreds of inputs, hundreds of outputs in hot wallets, you can have thousands of transactions a day with things being mixed in. And some of the, the amounts are, can be broken down into smaller amounts or recombined in any combination, mixed with other customers' funds. That essentially the entire system provides this, this cloak of anonymity or confusion, if you like. It's not designed to do that. It's just the way it operates. And again, this is exactly like the banking system. You can't trace cash for very long. You can trace it one or two or three hops. Eventually, it gets so diffuse and diluted into the general money supply that it touches everything. And that's the thing you've got to realize with Bitcoin is that in normal operation, you know, the naive thing is, well, all you have to do is see if the money that's coming in is from an address that's known to be stolen. Really? <laughs> no, it is really not that simple. Well, first of all, I can create a thousand addresses. And then I could, with a series of transactions, I can bounce the money around in these addresses myself without touching any other providers, just you know, if, if, you're, if you're trying to obscure your, your path. So, so first of all, then how many hops back do you look? Uh, and then you've got to realize that if you start doing that, you start saying, well, I'm going to look back 10 hops just in case they, they mixed it 10 times with their own addresses. Then all they have to do is mix it 11 times, and they thwarted your stupid technique. And if you go, really, you, you start going into the six degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon's story, right? Within a dozen transactions, almost every Bitcoin in active circulation touches almost every Bitcoin in active circulation because my little Bitcoin was used to pay the fee for this guy's transaction that ended up in an exchange hot wallet mixed with everything else and has now tainted every single withdrawal from that exchange going out. And before uh, that, it was in the Silk Road and yeah. <laughs> and, and that's for one hop, right? If you do two hops, three hops, four hops, ten hops, you're done. And uh, for the Which good guys... Which is why blacklisting and you know, so-called black and white coins, that'll never work. Well, it won't work because even if you're not deliberately trying to thwart such a, such a system, everything gets tainted. It's like the idea that, well, why don't we just remove from circulation any dollar bill that has traces of cocaine on it? <laughs> There'd be no because dollar bills left. Because they all do, right? Yeah. Because they all do. Why don't we just remove any money that has gone through X bank? Because eventually, right, over a period of time, especially it's a high volume bank, everything will touch their income and outcome somehow. The economy, especially if you consider the velocity of currency, the economy is a mixer, right? <laughs> It's not that Bitcoin is a mixer. It's that economic activity is in itself inherently a mixer. When we talk about velocity of money, we're talking about the same dollar being used again and again and then and again to transfer value from one person to another. And that's a mixing function. Now, if you do it on, on Bitcoin, where the barriers to doing transactions, the cost to doing transactions are lower, where the cost to creating an address is zero, where the address space is 10 to the 70, um, you know, I can create a trillion addresses in an afternoon, 
and bounce things around for very little cost. The other thing is if you implemented blacklists and someone actually wanted to thwart them, all they have to do is go one hop more than you're checking, or even worse, single amount from a tainted address and split it into a thousand tiny outputs and then use that to taint the hot wallets of the thousand most popular Bitcoin services. Basically, you can actively make everyone in Bitcoin the accomplice to the theft. Uh, by by dropping little dribs and drabs, like if I put 10 cents into a hot wallet, every withdrawal after that, do you know which 10 cents came in and came out? You, well, you don't really. And you'll end up remixing and remixing and remixing. All you have to do is create an output that is fee-sized, and that output will be reused a lot, because every wallet out there will pick that output to pay the fee, right? Yeah. Have you ever heard of anybody getting really lazy and just not even bothering to <laughs> mix coins and just maybe they wait a couple of years after a big high profile theft and then they just, you know, move the coins to some really obvious address or they screw up somehow or or if they're good enough to steal the coins, are they good enough to make sure that they keep privacy hygiene going? I mean, I haven't heard of it. We are going to see both examples. For the most part, I think the old adage that criminals are stupid applies. Uh, even white-collar criminals or high-tech criminals fundamentally stupid. Because for the most part, people who are not stupid have productive uses of their time and can do better things with their time than right. They than don't need crime. to resort to crime. Right. Right. The historical evidence of the stupidity of criminals is makes for some very amusing YouTube videos and some very uh, amusing TV shows. But the bottom line is that these people will slip up eventually. You know, and the blockchain is forever. So, yes. However, there are so many ways to move in and out of the blockchain. Whether you're moving from Bitcoin to cash or essentially any currency in any country. You can also move from Bitcoin to other cryptocurrencies very easily, mm -hmm. back and forth. Now you've spread that stuff over every blockchain out there. And, and so it becomes even harder to trace. Essentially, we have to give up on the idea that you can prevent theft after the fact by restricting the movement of money. That was the nation state's wet dream of the 1970s that started to come to fruition, a fully controlled, fully surveilled, end-to-end -end financial system with complete hegemony by the United States dictating terms to every country in the world. You're either inside the system and fully controlled and surveilled, or you're not inside the system. And that dream ended on January 3rd, 2009. <laughs> Which is the birthday of Bitcoin. Yes. The day the first block was mined anyway, right? Yeah, the implications will take two decades to play out. But effectively, we now have a choice. The future will be digital money, and we have a choice between digital money that is surveilled and controlled and digital money that is free and open. And I think since the vast majority of people on this planet don't have banking, they might as well choose the right choice from the beginning, the first choice they're going to make. They now have an option, and, and they certainly have the incentives because their governments are corrupt and stealing from them. We have to separate the means from the crime and understand when we're just simply chasing means. Because uh, the, the more you are removed from the actual crime, and the more you start punishing the means, uh, the more totalitarian your society becomes. 
Thanks for listening to episode 283 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Stephanie and Andreas. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine and featured music from Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.